Welcome, everybody, to this is now episode two of the LHSR uh, podcast. We have some extremely special guests with us today. We have the uh, government.uk COVID dashboard team who have latterly moved to the uh, UK Health Security Agency. Um, we have um, several of the team on. They're going to talk about their exciting, brilliant work with the uh, COVID dashboard, which I must say I consume a very large amount of on an almost daily basis. Um, so first, we're just going to kick off. Let's just uh, meet all the team. Um, so perhaps you could just start talk about uh, who you are and what your different skills are and just uh, what you do in the team. So let's start with uh, Ancho, please. Yeah, hi. So I, yeah, I am Ancho. I am the user research lead of the COVID-19 dashboard. Thanks very much. Uh, James? Hi, I'm James Westwood. I am deputy head of the COVID-19 dashboard, um, which day-to-day -day means getting the data ready and checked, ready to deploy it each day at four o'clock, as well as developing new metrics, um, I suppose, skill set. Bit of a, a jack of all trades, master of none is probably how I describe myself, a generalist. So I'm an analyst by background. So analytical techniques is kind of what I bring to the table. Thanks very much, uh, Claire. Hi, so I'm Claire Griffiths. I am the team leader. Um, so my background is as a health analyst. I've worked in health statistics for over 20 years. And my skill set now is telling people what to do, mainly. <laughs> Add Poria, please. Hi, um, I'm Poria. I'm the technical and development lead of the dashboard. Um, uh, my daily job is to essentially um, create and maintain and uh, you know deploy the infrastructure the code the the software base the database the etl service uh, and uh, things of that nature um, everything that is not our data pipeline it basically falls into my domain excellent thanks very much right um so uh let's kick off then so just tell us about the early days when the pandemic started uh, what did it feel like to be working on the data? Did you feel a lot of pressure? I mean, we started the the project, or at least the project landed on my desk uh, around uh, the beginning of April 2020. Um, before that, there was a um, there was a uh, map and a uh, and a simple um, table of data using a third party service. Uh, which was launched in early March, and uh, we eventually went live with the with the dashboard with version one of our dashboard on 14th of April 2020. Um, now, um, the pressure at the time um, was not um, in this in the sense that we had pressure from the public like we do right now because of the high-profile nature of the service, but we had a lot of opposing forces uh, that didn't really cancel each other out. So we had um, we had people telling us to publish X and people telling us not to publish X, for instance. Um, so we had to come up with a methodology or a workflow that could really um, accommodate different needs and different opinions and come up with a consensus. So we had to build a consensus building um, system as well um the, the there were other problems in in 
uh, in the sense that uh, we didn't really have any infrastructure in place to uh, create a public facing dashboard that met the, the needs uh, and the criteria set by the UK government in, in, the, in terms of accessibility, in terms of you know, ease of use and things of that nature. And of course, um, we didn't really have a set budget because this was not a pre-planned project. It, it was something that we felt was needed and started working on. Um, so these were, these were the, the main issues that we faced in early days. Um, and that led to uh, a number of people. We were, we were a very small team at the time, so four or five people in the beginning. And uh, there was indeed a lot of pressure on individuals um, in that we had to work very, very long hours, sometimes up to 15, 18 hours a day to make this possible. Thanks very much. So you mentioned um, technology there. So that's quite a nice, uh, nice segue into the next question. Um, so I'm just interested to, uh, if you could talk about the different technologies that you used, um, how you work together and how you um, processed and visualized the data uh, and made sure it's timely and accurate. So uh, uh, there are really two, um, you know, side star technologies. Uh, one is um, the, the, the parts related to our pipeline and pre-pipeline processes, which I think James is best uh, place to talk about. The other part is that which is really seen and used by end users. So uh, the public parts of the service. Um, and in that sense, we're using um, quite an extensive um, pool of technologies in terms of both programming language and um, the, the services, the cloud services that we use. Our, our services are entirely cloud-based. Um, in, in terms of uh, the, the, the technologies that users can use, we have three different APIs. We have a public-facing dashboard, which is what most people use. And the, um, the visualization service that we use is, is reliant on Plotly which is used by many R users, as well as users of other programming languages. And, um, and generally we use very cutting edge technologies and uh, services to, to, to make this possible. But one of the more, more important parts of um, this whole thing is that it, it, it was built to, it was built for a specific purpose. Um, so it's bespoke service. Um, and uh, it, it, what we've been trying to do has been to, to take into account the needs of individuals. And we have different categories of users, which I think Andrew will touch on later. Um, and um, they have different needs. So a professional user wants the data, but the, uh, a member of the public might want to see the, the latest numbers and latest trends. So they have different needs and they need to be accommodated uh, differently. Um, and yes, and for that reason, we've created different APIs. One is su uh, suitable for, you know, um, getting more granular data. Um, one is more suited for um, getting uh, larger pools of data, so uh, bigger data sets. And uh, yeah, so that so that's how we designed this. And then we 
created very extensive documentations for this to make it easier. And we created SDKs for our API. So we have an SDK in R, we have it for .NET, uh, we have it for um, Python and JavaScript. So people can use um, our SDKs directly in their programming language of choice and just get the data that they need where they need it in a proper um, structure, which is, I think, what made our um, API quite popular. But I think James can explain the, um, the rest of the work that's done on the pipeline and our, um, our non-SDKR base. Yes, please, James, come in. <clears throat> sure. So <clears throat> at the very beginning, as you can imagine, things were quite basic as a starting point. So we literally started out by having various Excel spreadsheets, um, copying and pasting figures in, and we've got various outputs to create, some of which go forward through the pipeline, as Puri has mentioned, and, and go over um, for publication on the dashboard via the ETL service. Um, but we've also got various internal outputs that we need to create. So, so these initially were all being done by sort of three analysts, one of whom was myself and, and two others that joined originally in March uh, of last year. And essentially Excel was what everybody knew and it was, it was the quickest way to get things done. But as it became clear that this was gonna be going on for a longer period, it quickly became apparent that we needed something a bit more robust and the data was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, so we decided to invest in writing some R scripts to kind of, you know, automate these processes that were being done manually because as stuff got bigger, as more data came on board to do it the way we were doing it, we'd need a huge team of people or lots of time, neither of which were feasible. Um, so, so yeah, we started writing R scripts to kind of pull data from various different places. So as you can imagine, as a UK dashboard, we get data from England, from all the nations, they're all in slightly different formats. They all have slightly different starting points. Um, so R just enabled us to, to write a script which could kind of take all these variables into account and was less reliant on high-risk activities like copying and pasting and, and moving stuff around in that kind of more manual fashion. So that's that's kind of what we do really. We've got various R scripts now which, which do everything from creating the lookups required for the dashboard, pulling in the populations when populations update. Um, we've got lots of different area types, so um, all the way down from MSOAs all the way up to nations. Um, we've got health geographies, we've got local authority geographies. So, so R enables us to, to pull all those in from APIs and update them sort of as they become available in a, in a kind of automated fashion. So am I right in thinking that most of the uh, most of, most of the data processing is done just in R, then, not 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 anything else. Um, outside of the the data pipeline, our outputs and things are created using R scripts. But I'd say the majority of the processing is probably done in Python um, yeah. in the pipeline, and and also for his side uses various different languages. For would be the best person to <laughs> go through those. Once we receive the data from the pipeline, um, then we receive various chunks of data from the pipeline at different times of the day. Um, the processing of this, the, the data is done in Python. So the ETL is written in Python and then gets deployed to a Postgres database. 
the rest of the infrastructure has been written in a combination of different languages. We have Python, we have um, parts of the service that are in C sharp and F sharp. We have uh, parts of the service that are in Go. Um, and of course, um, there are different bits and pieces of script in, in Bash as well. So yes, we use, we tend to use the best tool for, for, the, for the job as opposed to be very adamant of, uh, on, on using one specific programming language or one specific system. Great, okay, thanks. Right, okay, so moving on, let's just talk about the open source nature. Obviously, this is well, this is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why I love this project so much is because it's open source. So I just wonder if you could just talk about, um, you know, the contributions you've had and you, the, the sort of impact that you think open sourcing has made. So um, in the early days of the, of the project, I recommended that we make the project open source. Um, and there were a number of reasons for that. One was that it would increase the quality of the work that we're doing because it is public and everyone can see it. It would also help improve our security in general because uh, we would get advisory uh, notifications, we'd get contributions from members of the public, they will be able to interact with us. It would also increase the, the level of trust in general because people can go there and see. So we have, I think, 18 repositories um, people can go there, look at the, data, the, the code and see exactly what's happening in there. And that would help them trust the work uh, more and, and see the level of work that's, that's going into it. So yes, um, and, it, and it has helped us. So we, in, in the early days, especially when we really didn't have much time and uh, even uh, less uh, you know, contributions from inside the organization. So we really didn't have many people working on the service, every once in a while uh, may appeal to different um, people. Um, so um, once I sent a message on the government Slack channel and asked people to, if they have some, some spare time to contribute. And uh, a lot of people um, stepped forward and, uh, and contributed bits and pieces to the service in general. So we have had people from the GDS helping with the accessibility parts of things or compliance parts of things. And we've had people just noticing something is wrong and not necessarily from the government, um, from the government channel, from members of the public, noticing something is wrong. Um, and they've, they've gone into the code and found the part of the code that was causing it and changed it and made a pull request and um, I reviewed it and, and uh, approved it. So. This has, this has been a very um, nice way of interacting with members of the public. Um, it has also opened uh, some doors for us in that we've, we've managed to get better support from different um, dependencies of our code. So, for instance, if we had an issue or, or a question um, with regards to, say, Plotly that we use to visualize data on the dashboard, uh, members of the so core developers of Plutly have stepped forward, helped us with it, or if we reported a bug, they took it very seriously and they worked on it immediately and fixed it. So this, this type of interactions have helped us build a better, more resilient and more robust platform. Great, thanks. Yeah, I must say it's really nice to hear. It's, some of the, it's, it's such a useful part of open source that, you know, that people, obviously, because at the beginning of COVID in particular, there was a lot of you know, interest in it and, you know, a lot of people doing outside their normal job. And it's so rare in analytics really to get that kind of 
community involvement and you obviously you've had that in this project it's, it's really excellent we um, still have quite a, a large number of people visiting the service with i think about 151 people um who favorited our main repository and um we have about six seven hundred thousand unique visitors a day visiting the the dashboard so there, there has been quite a uh good uh, amount of uh you know uh interest on on the dashboard which is as you said very rare for uh you know official statistics yes i mean obviously yeah it's it's uh it's one of the nice things that's come out of COVID, isn't it? Really, is this you know sort of projects like this? Um, right. So, just thinking about uh, moving away from developers then, and just thinking about you know the general public. So, how has the how has your work gone down with the general public? So, why I can answer that? So, to, to, uh, what we do is a user research. So, basically, it's a function that supports the team, and the way we do that is by engaging with users and trying to understand their needs, which is complicated because we have, as Puria said, we have different uses and different users have different needs. And to make it more difficult, these needs and expectations change over time as the pandemic evolves. So something that they might be interested one month ago, they are now interested in something else. And we want to be on top of that. So the way is to engage with them constantly. So uh, in particular, we need to understand who the users who the dashboard 19 users are, and uh, for example, which device they use, because this has an impact on the development, and what they want to achieve when they look at the dashboard, which information they are looking for, uh, and also do they understand the data? And so some of our, some of our users are not in uh, math, so we have to make sure they understand so what we found out doing this is uh, we have, yeah, as Puria mentioned, uh, we have uh, the most of our audience are uh, members of the public, uh, a bit skewed towards the older age groups, from 50, uh, 50, 60. But we have also data professionals, like we have uh, public health data analysts, for example, for example, working for local authorities. We have journalists, have researchers, and this are smaller group but equally important because they are very vocal and they will uh, talk about us around and you know they, they have a very very key function so we have to help them as well so how we did to understand all of this so we, we have different methods qualitative and quantitative uh, research methodologies so for example on the qualitative side we try to engage one on, uh, with users one-on-one -on -one. so do we do user testing and interviews and uh, we try to, um, uh, we, we, so far I think we met over 120 users and uh, also users with disabilities. We want to understand how access, we can make our, the, the, the dashboard accessible for everybody. So never, no one would be excluded. And then we have quantitative uh, tools, which are very important as well because give a bit more confidence on the, the findings. And then we have surveys. We've been doing four surveys so far. The last one we had about around 38,000 respondents. We, that we had to analyze with our analysts. We also have uh, email trackers so users can write emails 
whenever they want to give feedback, positive or negative, and uh, we monitor that very closely, constantly, and the reason because they, when there is an issue, on the, we can know that from users straight away. So that is very important for us to have this open channel. And uh, yeah, as you mentioned before about Twitter as well, we monitor as much as we can social media. So what people say is, uh, is important. So we try also to reach uh, ethnic minorities. So we are trying to understand how we can be more appealed to other uh, ethnic groups uh, beyond the, the, our main user base. And uh, so what, what, um, the outcomes of all of this is uh, we could measure the trust over time and the, the trust uh, on, on the data we publish grew for reasons uh, Puria mentioned based, and also because we try to be transparent on what we publish. So uh, at the last uh, survey reflected 93% um, of the users trust uh, the, the dashboard. 91% uh, said they are satisfied with the, the dashboard, and 92% said they would recommend, they are very likely to recommend the, the COVID 19 dashboard to other friends and family, which is, is very, very, very high. So uh, we, we monitor this over time, and whenever uh, we see an issue, we can uh, intervene straight away. And yeah, I think this is most of it enough yet can you give an example what oh yeah i'll yeah i'll just bring james in a minute can you give an example of something you've uh, something you've changed in response to user feedback like what what kind of what kind of things are you looking at when you when you're looking at feedback so one of the things we try to understand is what they are looking for and what they are interested in and then we have to discuss internally whether first we have that data and secondly how we if we can publish it how we can publish it to make it uh, sure they understand it or another thing we might we might find out is that there is a specific data they, they don't really understand so we try to use uh, graphics some like a chart or something to support that data or any other visual hint so kind of using redundancy to uh, help them to understand it a, a bit better. I don't know if right. that answers it. Yes, that does. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, James, please. Thanks. Yeah, I just wanted to say as well, sort of working as on the analytical side and sort of accessing those emails as well. I think it's really driven a thirst for data in the general public. A lot of the emails we get start with absolutely love what you do. Can I have this, 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 and this. We publish a lot of data already, but people always what seem to want more. So I thought it was really interesting that that it seems to be driving more and more thirst for for data. Yeah, I think that's sort of something that's come out again. Something else has come out of COVID generally. I think, isn't it? Is it seems to have really awakened. Uh, I mean, I've got a friend. He can see. He, he's on about five different dashboards, and he just you know he's he's constantly sending me like, the best bits of each. Um, Anyway, yes. Um, okay, great. So, um, how important uh, do you think work uh, like yours uh, has been in managing uh, the pandemic, uh, both in terms of the decisions that were made about it, as well as in terms of, uh, in, as we were just saying, we're engaging the public with the data? So, I think it's hugely, hugely important in terms of both of those aspects, actually. I mean, I think 
pretty unrivaled as a, a service, the level of transparency that we've got here where everyone knows they're getting this update at 4 p.m., hundreds of metrics, huge, huge volume of data. I think that's pretty unrivaled across the world, I think, the, the actual volume that we're churning out every day. And it's absolutely been used to feed into decision making. And I think a good example of that is probably if you can think back to around this time last year when we had different tiers of the country and people could be in a local authority in level one or two or three and there were different criteria for for being in the different tiers and all, all the data that fed into those decisions was available on the dashboard which meant that the public, journalists and so on could investigate whether they thought that the right decisions had been made and that you can find articles from that time where people have plotted how different local authorities fitted in with the tiers and, and what they thought about the decisions. So that level of transparency, I think, was pretty unrivaled. Um, and I think the public themselves were then using it to make decisions about their daily lives. You know, they could see the case rate in their small area going up as we go to MSOA level within England there. People could see that the case rate in their area was making them go from light blue to dark blue to purple. And that has an impact on people's decisions about what they would do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, you know, regardless of what they're being told to do, if you like, it kind of democratises that a bit. And we've had quite a bit of feedback from the public where they've talked about how they have used the dashboard in that way. So I think we're quite confident that that's how they're using it. Um, and I think you mentioned the increased public engagement with data. Obviously, the numbers, the basic numbers that we put out every day are on the news every day still. So they pretty much have been since March 2020. Um, so when you, you're watching the news at 10 or whatever, and the note, those numbers come up there as a result of the work that we've done on that day to make sure that they're available. Um, so data's on people's minds all the time. Um, and then things like... Uh, one example that always sticks in my mind is people being really engaged with something you would never expect them to care about. So we, we have the map that I've mentioned and around, I think, sort of December time last year, the case rates were getting so high that we felt our highest category wasn't granular enough to allow people to distinguish rates between different areas. So we had a quick conversation in the morning in the team about how we should handle it agreed between us by lunchtime what the new category should be and what the colour for it should be, implemented that for the release at four o'clock and it was on Channel 4 News at seven and I've never had that level of engagement with any piece of work that I've ever been involved in. No, indeed. I mean, I think I'm going to work my entire career and uh, I mean, not the Channel 4 News, I don't think anyone would notice at all if I changed the, one of the colour scales of my uh, thing. So, um... Yeah, I mean, this. I think this idea of transparency of the, the public are literally using the same data that the politicians are using to make the decisions, I think, is, is very powerful. And uh, I think you're, you're almost the best example of it that I can think of, really. So, um, yeah, it's great. Um, 
Okay, so um, presumably you're all still focused on uh, COVID at the moment, but what else What else is coming on the horizon uh, for you, do you think? Is it going to be stuff to do with the new normal, or will it be uh, just something totally different that's nothing to do with COVID? So shall I I'll start on that and the others can chip in if, if they want to. I mean, I think as a team, we're very focused on COVID and the COVID dashboard for the next three to six months. Um, you know, it's going to be needed through the winter. We'll be monitoring everything very closely. Um, I think beyond that, our organisation is hoping that there can be reuse of the technologies and what we've learned about data presentation and that kind of thing to be able to present data on other health protection issues and other communicable diseases. And flu is an obvious one. Um, perhaps not daily data, but weekly data um, could be made available via APIs and, and dashboards. But well, we're not really doing that at the moment for those things. So we've got a lot that we've learned that we can add to, I think, there. Okay, so um, just getting towards the end now. So I'm just wondering... Um... What what other projects would you like to highlight, uh, either to do with COVID or anything in the analytics space? What 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 teams and projects do you really um, you know admire and, and and want to want to want to point out now? Um, well, I had a couple, Chris. Um, I think it's important before mentioning other teams to to remember that ultimately the dashboard the dashboard is kind of the endpoint of a lot of work that goes on in the background across a lot of teams um, in the organizations. And so we're sort of presenting the data, but we're definitely not the only ones working on it. So we should definitely thank all the other teams that work on it. But a couple of projects kind of related to COVID, which I thought about highlighting were um, the situational awareness team, which kind of is, is mainly principally focused on sharing data with local authority colleagues um, so that they can do what they need to do for the response. And that's that's all been done in Power BI, which is another sort of interesting tool, which has really developed hugely from start to finish um, over the course of this response. Um, and another tool from another team that, that we work quite closely with is, is the WITCH tool, the, the wider impacts of COVID-19 on health, which has been done in R and using Shiny um, as, a, as a platform, which is which is again publicly available. So those are two um, sort of data sciencey type um, outputs that that have been really fantastic to to watch develop from my perspective. I don't know if anyone else got anything else to mention. I mean, I can if you like. I, I suppose it's it's worth mentioning. It's it's stuff to do with COVID, but I think it's worth mentioning some of the great work that people have done based on the dashboard. You know, journalists like John Byrne Murdoch done some excellent presentations that really explain what's going on to the general public, and Colin Angus has just done amazing work presenting the data in so many different ways, things that there's no way that we would be able to do. And I think the open data allows that to happen. And, and Colin's also been great at QAing our data and pointing out when things might be wrong. So thanks to him for that. So those are a couple that I can think of. I think um, people from different parts of the world have 
not only contributed to the dashboard, they have also um, adopted parts of the dashboard as well. So we've had different parts of the service from um, our uh, user interface uh, to our um, the, the structure and the versatility of our API to individual visualizations, such as the waffle chart that we show for vaccinations, adopted by different agencies um, inside and outside the UK. So we've had parts adopted by um, some state in Germany, some uh, the, 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 the visualization was used in Australia. The awareness is uh, taking note of the, the structure and versatility of the API as well as the um, interface that you're using. So um, it has had a had a wider impact beyond uh, the, the borders of the United Kingdom, but also beyond the, um, the limits of COVID. Yes, just picking up on a couple of points there, I must say, uh... I'm a, a keen uh, consumer of Conor Langus' work as well, and that is also all, um, well, all the stuff I've seen is, is shared on GitHub as well, which is really nice. And I must say that I absolutely love waffle charts. That's a more recent thing, isn't it? Because that's to do with vaccines. Because you don't see them very often, do you? And there's such a good visualization. So I was really, really happy to see one in such a prominent place, because I think you're right. I think it will, uh, you know, promote their use. And uh, I think they're, you know, so much better than, you know, so the, the, the typical choice would probably be like a pie chart or something, wouldn't it? And it's such a, yeah, so I, I was very happy when I saw that. Took a lot of discussions um, to come up with that. Oh, did you indeed? What, what else was on the deck? I mean, um, we had a, a, I think, a bar, a single bar. So uh, essentially like a progress bar. Um, I think we had, um, what else did we have? We had uh, some variation of pie and donut being suggested by people. And uh, we had something else as well. I don't remember what it was, but there was something else as well. I think it might have been a, a bar chart, a simple bar chart or something. But yes, we, we um, one of the tests that we did, um, and that was very interesting, and we came up with this as a team, not one person's recommendation on how to test it, but it was very interesting. We created the same, um, so we used the same data to create different charts, including a pie chart, a, uh, a bar chart, a uh, waffle, and a uh, progress bar, and then put it before different users. They, most of them, at, at first glance, said that they like either the progress bar or the, the pie or donuts or variation of that. Then the second question was that, okay, now guess what the number is in there. So what is the number that you're looking at? What, what is your guess? What's your most accurate guess by, by looking at this? Now people came up with all sorts of numbers and the closest they got to it was 10% off. It, when we, when they did the same on waffle charts, they were only they could only be one percent off, so not even one percent, half a percent off, and that is the difference, and that is the reason why we decided to go uh, eventually with, with waffle charts because that that the presentation provides the most accurate way to read uh, the data as opposed to you know you, you, it's anyone's guess what what the number is on a pie chart or in a progress bar you need to look at the actual value to determine what the number is and that defies the point of using a a visualization whereas in here you don't really need to look at the number you will see there there, are, there is a grid of five by five the grid is full is five percent if it isn't it's 
<laughs> so, sorry, it's not five, it's a 10 by 10. So yeah, um, it's very easy to, to work it out. And that, that is the advantage of it. To add to, to put, I think uh, we are always careful to, you know, to, when we ask, when we ask users what they think they, they, they need, probably we have to be careful on that because sometimes they, they don't know what is best for that, for them. They, they tend to talk, speak based on uh, the experience, what they know. So, you know, they, they propose things they, they saw somewhere else, but probably is not the best, the best solution for that specific case. We need to ask targeted questions to um, ensure that they, that they don't only like the looks of something, they also can obtain the information that is supposed to be conveyed by looking at that thing or through their experience with that, with that feature or whatever it might be. Yeah, well, I thought you might say that. People like what's familiar, don't they? So it's, it's just an interesting chance to test that thing. And then you're right. I mean, the waffle chart is completely unambiguous, isn't it? So I think it's on, is it 89% at the moment? I can't remember offhand, but you can tell instantly. So, I mean, I look at it very regularly and you can tell instantly. So that's uh, that's really nice. Um, okay, great. Well, that's all the questions I've got for you today. So thank you very much. So I have seen some rumblings on Twitter, though, about some... Uh, uh, some awards or or something. So I don't know if anyone wants to just tell me what the what the news is with that. Yeah, so we were very pleased that we've won a couple of awards. We've been nominated for things and not won throughout the pandemic. So recently, we we were very pleased to be voted for by our colleagues um, for the team award for communication within Public Health England, which is where we were until very recently. So we were delighted with that. Um, and then just last week, I think we jointly won the Data IQ Data for Society Award with our colleagues in NHS England and Improvement. So that was really nice. Great. Excellent. Well, richly deserved. Um, OK, so thanks, everyone. So that's the end of uh, NHSR Podcast 2. I hope everyone has found it useful. Thanks very much again to my uh, guests and we'll see you next time.